Welcome to another episode of the More Love podcast with Helen Reynolds, the place for conversations that reveal your greatest strength is in your sensitivity to love energy. Today, I'm so happy to be sharing this episode with Claire Goldsbury. Welcome, Claire. Thank you for having me, Helen. It's going to be a good conversation. So I've just finished reading your book, your latest book, actually, it's not your only book, The Illusion of Life and Death. Mind, Consciousness and Eternal Being, which I've thoroughly enjoyed and I appreciate the loving contribution it makes to the topic of living. Even though it's kind of a book about death, it actually makes this wonderful contribution to how we live. And I thought there were two things that make your book so wonderful. The first is that it illuminates life by discussing life and death in the context of the divine. And I love how you've bridged multiple spiritualities. We'll just say that. We'll get more into it as the conversation evolves. And, um, oh, well, I sort of said it here, actually. Secondly, you've managed to bridge religion and Eastern philosophy and personal experience seamlessly into one easy-to-read book. I just thought that was wow. (laughs) So to me, your book is for anyone who's sensitive to feelings, emotion and energy and who wants to embody their true essence of being in their everyday life experience. So I really enjoyed it. Enough about me talking about your book. Would you talk to us about how you've come to write this book? But I'm keen to sort of start back way more towards the beginning and I know that you were asking why questions from a really young age. And I think a lot of us who are sensitive to feelings, emotions, and energy do that. We're the the kids who go, but why? But why? (laughs) So would you share with us a little bit about how it's been for you being sensitive as you've grown up and, and how it's led you into this journey to write the book? Well, I always ask a lot of questions, and, and as I've gotten older, I've, I've come to learn, and what I tell a lot of the, the students in the classes I teach are, the questions are always more important than the answers, and I think that uh, a lot of people go searching for, for answers, and they want the answers, and we don't always have the answers. I don't have the answers for you. Uh, you don't have the answers for other people, and so in the search, Asking why really has more to do with learning to live the answers as we encounter them. Uh, I've always asked, you know, why religion? Why church? Uh, Although I was raised mainstream uh, Protestant Christian, I I could never uh, understand the incongruities that life seemed to to offer. Why do some people uh, live this way? Other people live that way. Why are some people born in poverty? In, um, in, in countries that just never seem to overcome poverty. Other people, you know, like myself, I was lucky enough to be born in a family that provided me and my brothers with everything we could have ever wanted and, and gave us good educations and, and so forth. So I think the why questions were more like, uh, you know, what, what is life? Why am I living this life and somebody else is living that life? And, uh, and I think that uh, through the years, uh, even though I've been into various um, religions, um, 
and read various spiritual traditions and, and finally ended up, um, not by accident, by the way, because uh, it's been said that when you're, when you're a seeker on the path, there are no accidents. So I was, uh, I was thrown Buddhism in the way there. And um, actually, it, it was something that, that clicked very much with me in this idea of why we live the lives we live. And, and then ultimately death, because I'd never really thought much about death. Uh, death and dying is not talked a lot about in, uh, say, in the Judeo-Christian traditions. And so I began to uh, be confronted by this idea of death because Buddhists talk about it a lot. And in fact, uh, they always tell, used to tell us, remember death. And, and I used to think about that a lot. Remember death. Because someday we will encounter it. And it was in uh, late 2002 that uh, my significant other, Brent, was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. And I was fairly new into the study of Buddhism. I'd been at it about seven, eight years. And, and I thought life was just going great. Like my life had always gone great. Right. You know, and when he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, that really hit me because I'd never known anybody with cancer. Nobody in my family was ever even sick. And so when he was diagnosed with cancer, I was stunned, but Brent was not. He looked at me and he said, well, this should be another excellent adventure. And I was just like, wow. And so uh, even though he was of no particular religion and had not really thought much about religion uh, even, he seemed to have an attitude that was very Buddhist-like and yet he'd never studied Buddhism. So you know, did, did I teach him anything? No, I always say he's the one that taught me. I kept a journal and subsequently the journal of the 18 months that he lived and we had a great time and he enjoyed life and people just couldn't believe the way he continued to enjoy life and never thought much about his body or, or anything about the cancer. And he had a good death. And so that gave me the impetus to write this book because I thought people need to know not only just how do we have a good life, but the other side of that coin is how do we have a good death? And we can't really have a good death unless we learn how to live fearlessly. Then we can learn how to die fearlessly. And what is life and what is death? and all that goes with it. Yeah, I love that statement you make. If we don't know how to die, then we don't know how to live either. I've, I've probably got the words just a little right, bit wrong. but right. That's I, right. I think that's fantastic. And, you know, if we address the fear, then we've addressed so much that burdens us. Yes, yes. Fear is a huge obstacle to being able to live. Hmm. Um, I know I've... I've read a lot about fear in, in a lot of different philosophical books and a lot of the, the spiritual books. 
uh, and even, uh, you know, in the, the New Testament, uh, you know, Jesus talks about fear and fear not. And why are you afraid? We're afraid because of loss. All fear is rooted in the fear of loss, whether it's loss of our health, loss of our, uh, you know, material possessions, loss of our relationships uh, with our friends, families, children. Um, but it's always rooted in this fear of, of loss. And if so, if we get over the idea that, that we're losing something, when in actuality, if you look at both Buddhism and quantum physics, uh, nothing is permanent. Nothing lasts forever. All things are mutable, changeable, impermanent. And so there's nothing really to hold on to. And from a quantum physics standpoint, nothing exists as a real solid object. Everything is created in the mind by the mind. And that's where Buddhism and quantum physics are very much parallel in their philosophies. Because uh, more than once, many times, uh, our teacher at the Sangha would tell us, uh, remember, everything is created in the mind by the mind. There is no inherent existence of anything outside the mind. Um, and as my favorite quantum physicist likes to say, Fred Allen Wolf is his name. Oh, yes. He wrote a wonderful book called Mind into Matter. Uh, he says, there is no out there, out there. <laughs> we look for everything out there when in, in reality, everything is in here, including how we look at life, our perspectives, including how we live our lives and who we are is, is all within. And yet people fear going within, uh, maybe afraid of what they might see when they go within, but it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary if we're going to live a fearless life. And, and embrace all as the path, even our death. Mm. So what's the, in your understanding, what's the energy that gives rise to our being or gives rise to this experience that we're having? Well, Is it love energy? Uh, you could call it love energy. I think most of the... Uh, uh, Sri Aurobindo in his book, The Life Divine, which is an amazing treatise, uh, says that it's a, it's a life force. It's the ground of our being. Um, you, you could say that it is love energy. Then we get into the idea of, of what is love. And of course, the English language has uh, basically one type of definition for love. Um, Greek traditions have uh, several types of definitions for different types of love because we love things differently. Mm. And um, I, I guess I've never been real comfortable with the idea of, of love. People say, well, God is love. Yes, that may be true. Then you get into the dichotomies of, well, if God is love, why did he allow my loved one to be killed in a in a traffic accident. And, and so we, we see these dichotomies. And so the, it's the life force, it's the life energy. It's uh, a universal being. And we are part of that universal being, yet we are always becoming. Yes. We are becoming this, this same divine being. In Gnosticism, it's the divine spark. 
that we are all born with that gives us our life energy. We are part of what the divine is, and we are that. One of my favorite lines actually is from A Course of Love, that love is attributeless. We give it attributes in our physical form. And so in that context, I think the life force energy that you're talking about and the love energy that I'm talking about are most likely the same thing. (laughs) Most likely. Well, you know, they say about that, that same thing about God too. Yeah. Um, That anything you can say about God or the all that is or Brahman or whatever you call it, anything you can say about that is not that. Because now you have given it boundaries. If it is love, it cannot be hate. If it is, if it allows thing, bad things to happen to good people, then why can't it allow good things to happen to everyone? Um, and so I think attributelessness is, is part of this whole idea of our ground of being or Brahman or God. Uh, we, we like to anthropomorphize God because that's something we can understand. Um, I can understand, you know, you as a human being and you love people and you try to help people. But if I try to put that same, those same attributes onto God, it's not going to work. Sooner or later, it isn't going to work mm. because some bad things are going to happen to good people. And I'm left wondering why. Which is one of the topics you you dive right into at the beginning of your book and in the discussion of karma. So I've actually got two two places I want the conversation to go. You, you can choose. I'd love to hear you explain about karma. And I'd also love to hear your understanding of the relationship between love and fear or life force energy and fear. Where would you like to go first? Well, let's talk about karma because that's a word that a lot of people misunderstand. Yeah. Uh, Karma as a word, as a Sanskrit word, just means action. And it involves all action of body, speech, and mind. And so any action is always creating karma on some level. The misunderstanding comes in when people see karma as retribution. In other words, they see the negative. And and yet it is not just the negative thing. Certainly, if you perform negative actions, you can probably expect a negative consequence at some point, maybe not in this life, maybe in your next life. Uh, maybe not immediately and maybe immediately. I mean, there, there are such things as instant karma. <laughs> and um, so you have to understand that karma is just action and that we are involved in karma every moment of every day. Because even thoughts, you know, body, speech, and mind, even our thoughts are creative. We have to be careful what we think. Because that can, that can create karma. We must have put out good thoughts, positive thoughts, positive energy. Because that is the type of world we want, is, is one that's positive. And if we have positive thoughts and we have a positive mind, then the world's going to be positive. And, and I think that, um, that people misunderstand karma 
And I think that's a shame. I know people who say they don't believe in karma, which is like saying, I don't believe in gravity. Uh, well, whether or not you believe in gravity, uh, it's there. Gravity affects you every single day, every single moment. So you just have to remember that, that karma is, is always just, uh, it's the consequences of everything, you, your actions of body, speech, and mind. And so if you try to have, uh, you know, tame your mind, have a better sense of how you're feeling. Uh, Pema Chodron, she likes to say, uh, how is my mind behaving? She said, we should ask ourselves that several times a day. How is my mind behaving? Because, you know, sometimes you feel yourself getting pulled off, uh, pulled off center. Or all of a sudden you're thinking bad thoughts or you're saying something nasty about somebody and like, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> and so you just have to ask yourself, how is my mind behaving? And then try to try to remember that everything is body, speech, and mind. I really love that that karma is action. That's just so perfect. That really helps demystify it, really, because we can take action in alignment with the energy of who we truly are, or we can take action regardless of how we feel and, you know, force something or really drive something you know and it could be a good thing or it could be quite a, a bad thing still it's action and it's either with the life force energy or without and so accordingly we're going to have responses to that combination right right, right. we have to learn to act rather than react i think we we are very reactive in our uh, responses to things and I think that's uh, I think that's difficult we need to learn to act rather than to react I think that's where learning to tame the mind learning to think before we blurt out (laughs) what we really are thinking you know and see how that's going to uh, affect us in that respect so what's popping into my mind just now is is Brent's uh, love for and enthusiasm for life it's it's a little bit off the topic of karma in a way but it just popped into my head and can I share a little story from the book yes I think it's page 167 and it's a little anecdote about Brent one day just a couple of weeks before he died he decided to take his Corvette out for a run on the freeway it was early in April on a Sunday morning not much traffic and he could get it up over 100 miles per hour and have some fun. When he came back, he told me he had the vet up to 120 on the freeway. I was stunned. You're going to get a ticket, I told him. "Eh, That's okay, he replied. I'll be dead by the time I have to go to court. (laughs) He considered that one of the benefits of being a short timer. He really did just grasp life and and all that he had didn't he he did and it was interesting because so many of the things he would say and just the way he would act to me would be how someone who was a practicing buddhist might react to things and yet he wasn't you know he was just someone who had lived his life very fearlessly and uh didn't really Uh, have any expectations that life should be different than it is 
And I, I thought, how wonderful that is, because that's one of the things, you know, and you learn in Buddhism that when you have expectations is when you're going to be disappointed. And when we get disappointed, then we suffer. And so I always say, expect nothing. You'll never be disappointed. And you might be surprised, too. <laughs> so, some people think that's a negative thing, but I don't know. It, it works for me, you know, so. <laughs> I think the idea of expectations has been really amplified by the self-help movement and the the movement that sort of has embraced the idea of affirmations and using our mind to create our reality. So I'm I'm not trying to suggest that we can't use our mind to create our reality because we've just been talking about that. <laughs> However, there's there's this this gap or this pothole I guess that you're talking about where we can develop these expectations as a result of the affirmations we're using or our expectations that using our mind in a certain way will give us you know a better home to live in or whatever the thing is (laughs) and so we've we've set ourselves up then for this judgment this this period of judgment that we're imposing upon ourselves exactly exactly I think that that when we have these expectations, and as you point out, there are, uh, particularly it developed during the 1800s in the uh, mind-body movement, um, where you know thoughts became uh, thoughts became uh, your reality, which that is true. Um, we can think ourselves sick. Can we think ourselves well? Um, but should we have an expectation that we will never be sick? If we get sick, then what happens? Uh, can, can we, Brett sort of just didn't think about the cancer, didn't think about his body. He had surgery, but that's all he had. He refused the chemotherapy as, as you probably read in the book. He, he just, I mean, he just kept on with life and he didn't really think about it. So I think, you know, he had no expectations that anybody was going to cure him. Um, you know, as he told the oncologist when the on, he refused the chemotherapy and the oncologist looked at him and said, well, if you don't have chemotherapy, you're going to die. And Brent said, dude, I'm going to die anyway. <laughs> so, so, you know, there was no expectations that if I do chemotherapy, I'm going to live to be 100. This is just life. I'm going to live my life. That's the way he thought. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to live it to the fullest. Well, my time's up, my time's up. And that's okay too. So I think expectations can lead us down a path to disappointment if we truly believe that everything we think uh, should become uh, exactly as we want it. I've always said the, uh, the universe doesn't always give us everything we want but it does give us all needful things for our life. And I think we need to remember that, that what we want always, it's not always in alignment with what we need down here in this boarding school we call life. I loved that analogy. I loved the analogy of boarding school. (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, And it always gives us what we need for our spiritual development as well. I believe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, we need to learn a lot of things. And, and part of that learning is being part of the divine, 
is finding our divine mind and making that connection uh, with the universe, with God, with whatever you want to call it, the all that is, Brahman, uh, whatever. We need to learn that. It's because our spiritual life is, is important. Our spiritual life, I think, is, is far more important than, than just our physical life. Um, how we how we look at life, how we adapt to life, how we embrace all as the path. It's very important. I, I completely agree. I'd love to share another anecdote. I love this one too. I actually lost the page number for this. I'm sorry, Claire, but it's definitely from your book. <laughs> at work one day, after getting off the phone with a client with whom he was laughing while talking business, one of the other salespeople, a young woman, came to him and asked, how can you have so much fun when you know you're going to die? Brent replied, we're all going to die, Jenny, but I'm one of the lucky ones. I know about when I'm going to die and I know what I'll die from, and that's a luxury most people don't have. There's two things I really love about that anecdote. One, he was willing to talk freely about death and alleviate the you know, when you're working, I, I just imagine for Jenny in that scenario, she's working with someone she knows is terminally ill and has a, you know, a relatively short time period in their lives. And she feels, most likely feels some kind of burden and some kind of difficulty around being there with him just because of our inability to talk about death and dying and and how it's a t subject that's just so withheld in a way, which is what your book is contributing, making such a big contribution to. And But he was just so free about it. And, and so that gave, that opened the energy and allowed Jenny to be freer about it as well, I imagine. It's a beautiful anecdote. Yes, I, I think that's what, all of Brent's friends and business colleagues uh, really learned from him. Uh, they didn't have to be afraid, you know, when you know somebody's dying, well, what do you say? You know, I mean, it's like you said, you know, you're around this person, you, you know, and you know they're dying and how do you react and what do you say? And, and so for him to be so free with the fact that he was dying, but it also had benefits, um, allowed other people to embrace that too. And and maintain their good humor about it. And to learn that that maybe death isn't to be feared so much. I know there was a, there was one other anecdote that just really cracked me up. And that was when he went out to lunch with his colleagues. It was a birthday of one of the colleagues. And so they all went to lunch together. They were all sitting there looking over the menu, trying to decide what to have. And people were saying, well, I'm on the South Beach diet or I'm on the Atkinson's diet or, you know, whatever kind of diet. And Brent said, well, just be glad you're not on my diet. It doesn't have any tea in it. And it took everybody just a little, you know, like that split second where you go, no tea. Oh, die. Oh, diet tea. It doesn't have any tea in it. <laughs> And but that's just the kind of sense of humor he had. Um, and, and you're right. It did allow all of them to laugh, you know, and it, well, dying isn't funny. Well, you know, it has some humor parts and Brent found all of them and he made people laugh. And I think that was a very good thing. 
Would you talk with us a little bit about how you see the the suffering that we experience because death is such a taboo topic or a avoided topic, even if it's not taboo? You know, what does it what kind of suffering does that lead us into that we're we're probably not even aware of? Because it's not like death's become a taboo topic in the last 10 years, you know? It has been for a really long time. And so there's generations upon generations that have been who have struggled through the death experience of loved ones and maybe even themselves. Well, I think that our attitude toward death in the modern world is different than what people experienced, um, you know, early on, you know, in the 1800s, 1700s, 1600s, because we are not very close to death today. Uh, Most people, and there's been studies done on this, most people die in hospitals or hospices where uh, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, people died at home. People died with their families. Uh, Children died at a very young age. They said that if your child lived to be five years old, he would probably live to be an adult uh, because uh, death took a lot of young children. So I think it is different. And I think that back to the expectation thing, I think that we've developed here in the modern world an expectation that medicine or pharmaceuticals can save us. And so we're not as willing to let go um, as Dr. Kevin Hasselhorst, who I mentioned in the book, uh, said that he is in his hospital setting has seen people you know, just beg him, please do something for my mother, do something for my wife, my husband, my child, when there is nothing to be done. And to get people to accept that ultimately, not even the best of modern medicine or pharmaceuticals can save us, that death is the ultimate end for all sentient beings for all living things. Death is the ultimate end for trees and flowers and and everything. And so it's just a part of life. So I think we suffer more from the idea of death than we suffer from the actual dying process or from death itself. You know, in the end, uh, just before he died, and he died here at home, just the two of us, although we did have hospice, but they kind of left us alone. They go, oh, you understand this so well, you really don't need us, but if you need us, call us, you know. And just before he died, he, he said, you know, he said, dying is so easy. He said, I thought it would be harder than this, but it's really so easy. And that's when I told him, I said, that's because you're not afraid. And, and, and I think that's true. I think dying is very difficult for people who are afraid, for people who are clinging to uh, their material life or clinging to you know, the life they want um, instead of allowing it to flow. Brent was a go with the flow kind of guy. You just, you let it happen and you go with it because that's the best way to handle it. So I think dying can be easy. And and I've often told people that, you know, if you remember one thing about this, dying is easy, but it's easy if you learn the fearlessness, if you learn to go with the flow, 
if you learn that it's just part of life. It's not from birth to death. It's actually from birth to rebirth. Mm. And that's just that that's the cycle birth to rebirth. And I think that's important for people to remember. It, it takes practice. It takes when, when I say practice, you know, a spiritual practice of some kind in a person's life to get to that point. <laughs> Not a death practice. <laughs> you know, in Buddhism, there is a death practice. Yes. Where we meditate on our own death. Yeah, you're right about and that. And we picture how that is, how, how our you know, how our life energy moves upward through all the chakras and in and then out of the crown of our head, the way it entered the crown of our heads when we were born. Mm. So um, I, I think, you know, a death practice. Yeah, that's if you're a Buddhist, you do a death practice. It's not something we did all the time, but it was this idea of remember death, remember death. Because if you remember death, your life is going to be a lot better. It's not morbid. People think it's morbid. And that's back to that. People don't like to talk about it. People don't want to know anything about it. Uh, they don't like to be around people who are dying. Um, you know, Brent made being around him so pleasurable and so funny. Um, and, and I think that we just have to learn, you know, a death practice to make it easier to live and easier to die. Mm. One of the previous guests on the More Love podcast was Catherine Ann Clement, and uh, she's brought forth some of the, um, or contributed to one of the Magdalene books, um, but there's there's two books. Anyway, the point is that the Magdalens talked about ascending into death, and it was very much a practice for them, and and it was a, it was a, they they wrote about. I want to say an active death, but, you know, when they felt that their time had come, they would participate, I guess that's the word, participate in the death process, in their death process, and they would be supported in their ascendance through the energy chakras and through the um, grounding channel, as you're talking about, by their loved ones. And all, and although the remaining loved ones felt the sadness of the loss of the physicality of that person, they were extremely aware that that person hadn't actually left. They were just in a different form. They'd begun again in their wow. spiritual form. That's beautiful. That really is. And, and I think if we learn more about the dying process, and not everybody goes through this process that's uh, outlined in the, the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, um, I, I studied that section of the book quite closely. And um, in fact, you know, these processes, especially the last few days, um, Brent was going through all these processes that it talked about in the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying and what the process was, what was happening. You, you lose the body heat, then you begin losing the water. That was kind of difficult and it's difficult for the person there and yet when you realize what's happening um in fact I told Brent uh, uh you know he said well he says he would say I, I think I'm I think I'm dying and I said well I think you are too I said but it's a good thing you're dying by the book so I know what's going on <laughs> he thought that was fun he got a smile you know because <laughs> he died by the book but you know something like that is good for people to have because when you know, when you kind of get this idea of, okay, this is happening, 
And this book obviously was written by people who have seen death close up time and time again and know this process. Uh, it's a good thing, especially for people who are dying uh, more slowly. Um, obviously, people get killed instantly and in accidents and so forth. But I think it's good to learn what the process is, because when you learn what the process is before you're confronted with it, it's not as fearful because now, you know, it's this process, just like life is a process. Death is a process as well. Mm. Which comes back to the point about, you know, people die in hospitals and hospices now instead of at home. I had the privilege that when my grandmother died, we nursed her at home and um, she was surrounded by her children at the moment she passed. And um, it was in the middle of the night and I wasn't there when she passed, but I was there, you know, the evening before and, you know, the, the days and weeks and so on. So you do, you you sort of, you feel and experience the dying process. And so it becomes part of life, isn't it? Yeah. And, but not many people experience that anymore, just That's like you said. That's very true. Yeah. And I think in a way it, it kind of does a, a disservice to us because we don't we don't see death for the benefits that it offers. And it, it's also offers benefits to the loved ones who are there. But again, I think it it takes it takes knowing what's going on. And if we've avoided this topic our whole lives, and then all of a sudden we're confronted with you know, death, it's like, uh, it's such a shock. And it shouldn't be because we're, we're born, we we know about death, all of our life, always, oh, yeah, I know I'm going to die. You know, people are flippant, you know, well, you got to die of something, I might as well die of cigarettes or whatever. Yes. Uh, You know, and people are very flippant about, yeah, they know they're going to die. But do they really know, in this deep realization that I'm going to die? And there's a big difference in that, something that we have to work on. Mm. And I think on the spiritual journey, it really helps to know that there is far more than the physical body that makes us us, you know, and that part is eternal and immortal and will forever be. So then it helps us to really view the time that we've got with, um, not a specialness, that's not the right word, but I guess as an opportunity. And and then, you know, knowing that, that that opportunity will end naturally at some point, it's not a total ending then. It's more the new beginning. That's right. It's a new beginning, really. Um, it's, I think it's more difficult, and I think I pointed it out in the book, I think it's more difficult for... Uh, people of um, uh, of the Christian religion, because for so many years, century, you know, two thousand years, um, we've been taught that uh, you're born at this moment and you die at this moment, and there's nothing in between. If you're good, you go to heaven. If you're not good, you go to hell. And so you have people like a good friend of mine who says, "I don't believe in anything." When you, when you live, you live. When you die, you're dead. And that's the end of it. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that it's that lack of having, having learned about reincarnation, having learned about what our past lives 
that there has been a past life, that there will be a future life, that this body isn't all there is, that we will, uh, we will have a new body, we will get new opportunities, new experiences, and that the life you're living today is, is the groundwork for the life that is to come as our past life was the groundwork for the current life we're living. I've heard uh, there's a Buddhist saying, if you want to know what your, uh, what your past life was like, look at your life now. If you want to know what your future life will be like, look at your life now. And so that continuum keeps on going, that mental continuum, the mind and the heart chakra that keeps on going and, and is never ending. Previous podcast guests, particularly Judy Carroll, for the listeners who you know listened to to the episodes, might remember um, she was very specific in talking about the concept of reincarnation being removed from the Christian literature from the Bible, and um, I think much has been removed. Per, yeah, that's my personal understanding. What remains, I guess, what remains in the Bible keeps us really focused in this physicality of being and um, and therefore limits us and causes suffering. Yes. In fact, there's only one reference to uh, reincarnation in the New Testament, and that is when uh, the disciples were asking Jesus, uh, who do men, uh, or Jesus actually asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And the disciples replied, well, some say you're Elijah or Elisha or one of the prophets, which indicated that they believed that somehow Jesus was the reincarnation of a previous prophet, an Old Testament prophet. And not a lot of people catch that when they're, they're studying New Testament. Um, but that's just one indication and probably the only one that I've been able to find anyway that indicates that there was once a belief in reincarnation. And really the um, crucifixion was an experience to show us that we're, we exist beyond the physical form. And that was one of the really intended messages of it, I, I think, that there is a beingness afterwards that is quite wow. substantial and very real. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. We've skirted around all sorts of conversation loopholes that we didn't anticipate, which has been such a wonderful thing. Maybe we could finish with how your experience um, and, you know, you've really deep dived into this understanding of, of death in relation to life. And in the book, you talk about how you've been there for other people as they've come to that period in their lives you know there's a couple of anecdotes about the lady who thought that uh, God had forgotten her um, because yes. you know her body had was no longer active but she was very much still there and ready yes. but ready to go um, so you know you've been there for a lot of people and you address also addressing we probably won't have time to talk about it now but just so that the listeners know you address the topic of suicide in the book as well in a really yeah. beautiful way I just wanted people to know that you, you know you've tackled all the tricky topics all the tricky topics that's exactly right well 
And there's so much suicide. Uh, it seems like suicides have really increased. You know, you read studies about them. So I felt like it was an important, plus it's a, very, a topic very close to me uh, of suicides uh, in my own family. So um, I think it needs to be addressed. I think the stigma of uh, someone killing themselves needs to be removed. Um, and I think we have a lot to learn in that respect. Mm. Oh, it's so tempting to dive into that, but we would talk for another hour. Um, <laughs> so uh, maybe we should one day. We'll see what the <laughs> Maybe we should. <laughs> maybe we'll see if the listeners ask us to. It might be nice to end with how has this, this study that you've obviously dedicated a, you know, a large number of years to because the book is is you know, it really exposes how much study and how much reading and how much contemplation you've put into this. So how has it made your life lighter? Because as you, as we said in the beginning, you know, to know how to die helps us know how to live. And and I really felt that in your book. I felt it was a, a support in living well. So how has it helped you live well? Well, I think it has taken a lot of uh, uh, has taken a lot of the mystery and the fear out of it. I think that a lot of times people fear what they they do not know. But I also believe it was also my my Buddhist studies that were, you know, I was into at the time. And I think it all kind of came together. And and maybe intellectually, I could talk about death and dying, uh, meditate on my own death and so forth. But then when when Brent got sick, it was like, now I was confronted with it face to face in real time, in real life. And it was like the universe saying, now what are you going to do, Claire? <laughs> you think, you know, here's the reality. And and I think that that it it gave me a lot of understanding um, and it, it really helped me understand, you know, why my life why I'm here, uh, my purpose. Um, and I, I just, it just has made life a lot lighter. And I just hope that the book helps people understand death and dying as well as living and what is life and how we create the life we have with our thoughts. So um, I, I think, uh, I think it's important. It, it's been important to me personally, and I hope it becomes important for others as well. Hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely appreciated it. And just so listeners know, you've you've covered, you know, you've covered the philosophy of Eastern traditions. You've covered the the religious beliefs or philosophy of, of Christianity. You've covered the sort of the physical experience, you know, as the, I really loved that part of the book where you covered, you know, water leaves the body and then heat and then, no, sight, I think, then heat, then air. Um, And and plus all these beautiful anecdotes that Brent left or left, I guess, um, you know, to, to make it all so much lighter. So, Plus, you've covered karma and suicide. Oh, and I loved the chapter on near-death experiences. Oh, That's okay. a beautiful chapter. Um, anyway, oh, my gosh, we better wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we better. <laughs> um, so thank you for such a beautiful contribution. 
Well, thank you, Helen. I appreciate talking with you. It's, it's been a great experience. I'm glad to share it with you and, and all your listeners. Well, thank you very much, Claire, for joining me on the More Love podcast. I'll have all the links to your book and to the website, your website, in the show notes page for this episode, which can be found at livetruetoyou.com. And it's been a really fabulous conversation that we've wound up like a fishing line, but um, we could, <laughs> I think we'll have to talk more again at some of the, the other little um, rabbit holes. But I hope for those listening in that this episode has revealed more of the power, truth and reality of love and given you greater confidence that your sensitivity to love is in fact a superpower worth loving.